0: This is a great text on the subject of discipleship, discipleship. We hear much today, don't we, within Christianity about the subject of discipleship. You hear about disciples and disciplers, about the cost of discipleship, the joys of having been discipled, the joys of discipling and so on. And in this particular passage of Mark's Gospel, I want to introduce to you this morning one of Jesus' own classic statements on the subject of discipleship. It is a call to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ and His life. And rather than simply expositing the text of Mark 8 this morning, which you know is our regular practice I want to take a little bit of time to explain some very important aspects of the call of Jesus generally in this matter of discipleship for it is so very very important let me read this particular passage of scripture so that we can focus upon the discipleship demands of Jesus Christ verse 34 and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." I thought long and hard about this passage and its implications for us, and I couldn't go past the concept itself of the very hard demands that are located here. I don't think it's unobvious to any of us that what we have here is a provocative and somewhat paradoxical statement of our Lord. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's very provocative, isn't it? In fact, it sounds downright strange. Because if you have been in Christendom, let's say, for any length of time you know that there are many people within the walls of this Christendom who preach a works salvation. You will find many, many people who will wittingly or unwittingly say to you that there is something that a person must do, some work, some merit, some effort, in order to achieve the favor of God. And it certainly seems on the surface that Jesus is saying something akin to that very thing. Notice what He says in verse 34. He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. You notice the three things He calls for here? A denying of oneself a taking up of a cross, and a following after Christ. Does that sound like a works salvation to you? It sounds almost as if we're to do something, to deny ourselves, to take up a cross, to follow Christ. Is he talking about something which he will later do himself? physically, literally taking a cross beam and traversing across a certain amount of land in order to achieve His own salvation? Is He talking to us and saying, you must do likewise, you must take up a physical cross and traverse some land in order to earn my favor? Are you to do this work of denying yourself in order to be pleasing to me? I mean, this is somewhat strange, isn't it? It certainly doesn't sound like the other passages which speak of a free and gracious offer of the gospel. It doesn't sound like someone comes to you and I and says, Jesus Christ has done all of the work of salvation. He's provided it all. There's nothing you can do. Come and drink of the water freely. Anyone who thirsts, come. Sounds very different from that, doesn't it? Sounds like it's something that I have to do. And you know, as people have struggled with a passage like this and several others, they've come to that very conclusion. And I want you to know that I reject that conclusion. That is precisely what Jesus is not saying. This is not a works salvation passage as over against a free grace passage. This is not someone who is saying that you have to do certain deeds in order to earn the favor of God. Yes, it does say pick up a cross. Yes, it does say deny yourself. Yes, it does say follow Christ. The question is what does it mean if it doesn't mean you have to work in order to earn God's affirmation. Certainly if Jesus We're saying, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, we would not want him ashamed of us. And so we ought to do what he's asked us to do. And apparently what he's asked us to do is to deny ourselves and to take up a cross and to follow him. what does it mean? This is one of the very provocative statements of our Lord. And it emphatically does not mean a works salvation. You say, well, how can you be so sure? Why? Because... The other passages which speak of a free offer of the graciousness of salvation by God would then immediately contradict such a passage as this. So it can't mean that. It has to be something else. The question is, what is it? Well, you may or may not realize this, but there is a segment of Christianity who for the last 20 or so years, at least in terms of books and printed materials have espoused a view that says when you read these Gospel accounts like we read here of Jesus in Mark 8 which by the way is one of the first passages in Mark's Gospel that talks about denying oneself and taking up a cross and following Christ this is really the first time we're seeing this hard demand of discipleship being articulated by the lips of our Lord and so some of these people who begin to grapple with these passages and I sure appreciate their willingness to grapple with them they say well Since the free offer of the gospel is God's grace, not with any works of any kind, and since this appears to be saying that there is some effort, some work, something for me to do in order to be a disciple of Jesus, it must be then that there are two levels of the Christian life. That the first level is the level of salvation where all a person knows is that they've responded to the free offer of the gospel, they've in fact taken that water of life freely, and they have now come into the kingdom of God. They're in. They're a part of the kingdom. They're Christians. They're saved. But then when you come to a passage like this, which seems to be giving us a hard demand, they say that can't be salvation, surely. So what it must be calling us to is a second level a level of discipleship. The first level is a level of someone who is simply and only saved. Now Jesus is coming along and saying, you must now catapult into the second level of this salvation experience, and that is your discipleship. And so they say, there really are two categories of Christians. The ones who are saved and the ones who have moved on to a second level of salvation called discipleship. And that's how they reconcile these passages together. One of the most Prominent of these is Zane Hodges, who back in 1980 wrote a book called The Hungry Inherit. And you can tell by the title that what he's referring to is there are some people who are not going to accept this particular level or hard demand of discipleship. They're in fact going to stay right where they are because the level of demand is too hard, it's too costly, and so they're going to be saved. They'll be in the kingdom, but they'll be in, as I like to say, by the skin of their theological teeth. But then there are those who, because they want to step up to the next level, who are willing to take on these hard demands, will then, as disciples, inherit all of the full blessings, all of the full realization of what heaven is going to be like. And that's how they reconcile these passages. And I asked myself the question, as I prepared this week, I thought, you now I could go through this particular passage, and I can exposit its truth, and I could preach, and I can teach what it says. But knowing, as I know, and some of you may know as well, that the other kind of teaching that separates salvation and discipleship is out there, and may some of it even be in here, we have to pause. And we have to deal with that question. Because the fact of the matter is, that's wrong teaching. It is not true. There is no second level. There's no second blessing. There's no higher life. A person who is saved is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And a person who is a disciple of Jesus Christ is therefore saved. It's in one sense as simple as that. Now you say, well, you've just dismissed their entire theology in one fails swoop. But you didn't do anything by saying what they're doing and why it's wrong. Well that's true. And we don't have enough time to be able to do that this morning, I wish we could any of you want to delve into that or you have been influenced by such a teaching you can talk to me later but one thing I do want to do is this I do want to affirm by looking at some passages how the issue of Jesus and his words and his demands and the hard demands of this discipleship are to be rightly understood For if you don't rightly understand these things you might very easily as some Go off into this kind of teaching because it seems so provocative. It seems as though Jesus is saying, you must do something in order to be my disciple. And in fact, he does say that. The question is, what is he driving at? What is he attempting to convey? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to take you this morning to six passages, six passages in the gospel accounts which speak of the matter of salvation. And discipleship but I want to say before we go to any of those six passages so that you will not misunderstand anything that I say I want to make a statement and that is this the Bible does not teach any difference between salvation and discipleship they are synonymous terms But at the same time, as we read some of these passages, it is going to appear to you and to me as though there is something that I am called upon to do, I'm commanded to do. It almost looks as though it's a works kind of salvation. But, beloved, it is not. It is not. And you must not be confused with these passages, as so many have been confused throughout the ages. Assuming, as they do, that the surface of the questions and statements themselves imply that there is work involved in salvation. I reject that. And I want to say right at the outset, no one is saved by doing anything within himself or herself that merits God's saving of them. By our own effort, by our own work, you cannot earn your own salvation. And what Jesus is referring to here in Mark 8 and these other passages that we'll look at is a call to count the cost of discipleship to those who would be disciples but who are unwilling to break with their pride and their self-effort which they are exhibiting. That's the key. That's the key to understanding these passages. It's Jesus and the hard demand of discipleship in order to show people that there is no amount of self-effort that would be good enough to earn the favor of God. See, it's the very reverse of what people assume. It's people realizing that when Jesus gives the hard demand there's no way to live up to the demand and then in utter despair you realize the demand itself and then the only possible option for you and me is to fall upon the mercy of Jesus Christ knowing we can't fulfill the demands of the law of God and that's what we're gonna see we're gonna see that we must abandon all self-effort there's nothing any of us could do except fall on the mercy of Christ. There's no human effort of any kind. Now, with that in mind, I want to take you to the first of the six passages, Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you each of these passages and we're going to go through them very, very quickly. I'm going to be Mr. Motormouth this morning because we have so much to talk about. And when we go through these passages, I'm going to give you a key word and with this key word, it will be the very thing that Jesus is endeavoring for the person or persons that he's speaking to to realize that that's the sin they're committing for which he's trying to show them so they can abandon that sin and fall upon the mercy and grace of Christ. All right, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. This is the story of the rich young ruler. You're probably very familiar with it. We'll go through it quickly. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a fair question. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There's a lot packed there. We don't have time to cover it. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now that's a very strange statement. Because as I said before, if someone comes to you and says, How might I gain eternal life? What are you going to tell them? Are you going to tell them to keep the law of God? to keep the Ten Commandments, or at least the first five, or the last five? Is that meriting someone's salvation if they're able to do that? No. The issue, of course, is that Jesus is attempting to point this man to his sin because Jesus knows that the man needs to know that he hasn't possibly kept those things, not to the fulfillment of merit or earn the gift of salvation, right? The issue is, Jesus wants him to see the law of God, the demand of the law, and to realize how far short he really falls. What's his response? Does he see it? Next verse, verse 21. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. Whoops. Now, immediately, he's caught up short, but doesn't realize it. And our first key word for this passage is pride. Pride. Jesus By showing this man the demands of the law is or should recognize that he can't possibly own up to the perfection of that statement. There's no way. If I were to ask you that question or if you were to ask me that question, have you kept the Ten Commandments? And if I were to add the statement, have you kept the Ten Commandments from your youth? What would you say? What would I say? I'd say a big, fat no. Of course I haven't. No one has. The Bible says every man has fallen short of the glory of God. Every man sins. No one has ever been able to keep from his youth the Ten Commandments, let alone one of them. This rich young ruler is being hit between the eyes and he doesn't even know it. Why? Because his pride is in the way. His pride's in the way. Can you imagine the audacity of a man who would go up to Jesus himself as the master teacher and say, I have kept all of the law from my youth? Incredible pride. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. In other words, all right, let's buy the premise that what you've just said is true. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now again, you read that statement and you say, now wait a minute, is Jesus saying if you do these things you will merit salvation? You're in? You you say you've done all those other things, I buy your argument, you said you've done them from your youth, I'll take that and now what I want you to do is sell all that you possess, give it to the poor and come, you'll be in heaven with me, you'll have salvation. Now Some might say, theoretically, yes, Well, that's not even a theoretical statement, why? because no one can do it. It's impossible on the human level. There's only one man who ever kept perfectly the law of God, and that was the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. No human being, save divinity, could ever fulfill the demands of the law of God. What Jesus is doing is he is positioning the probing eye of his own searchlight right into the heart of the matter, this man's pride, because he has a lot of possessions, a lot of money. And what does he respond with to this question? Verse 23, But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Why was he sad? Listen, if he were sad, he'd be sad about this. Boy, I just recognize that my pride and my arrogance has only blinded me to the fact that all I have is riches. That's all I have. It's like the statement, the the only poor man is the one who has only money. He should recognize, I'm sad because I have so many rich things. How can I get rid of these things as fast as I possibly can in order to follow Jesus? No, he was sad because he wasn't willing to part with the cash. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Say, how hard is it? It's impossible. It's impossible. If You're rich. You can't enter into the kingdom of God by clinging to your riches and clinging to Christ at the same time. It's like trying to go through the narrow road, which has been likened to a turnstile, with the baggage of your riches. You can't go through the turnstile. You try to go through that thing? You ever tried to do that? You ever tried to take your luggage through a turnstile? What do you have to do with it? You have to drop the luggage. You can't go through. It's a narrow way. And you can't go through with your money and your God. That's why Jesus said you can't serve God and money at the same time. He was rich. He was extremely rich, the Bible says, and he was saddened because he wasn't willing to count the cost and rid himself of his riches. He was proud. And I know the disciples understood exactly what Jesus was referring to. Jesus said, in fact, it is so impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, i.e., with his riches, that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get there. And I ask you the question, how difficult is it for a camel to go through an eye of a needle? It's absolutely impossible. Some have said, well, this must mean a needle gate, and they had back at that time a real small gate, and they would try to push these camels through that gate, and it was really hard, but it was possible. That's not what it says. Don't take away the very issue of what Jesus is trying to make here. He's giving you the analogy that is so incredibly extensive that there's no way a camel could ever go through an eye of a needle. Therefore, there's no way a rich man could ever take his riches and be a resident of the kingdom of heaven because if you have your riches, then you don't have Christ. But you can't have both. And the disciples understood that very well because they said then who can be saved? Jesus. If it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, then who can be saved? That's an impossibility. A camel can't go through an eye of a needle. And Jesus said, you have it now, boys. That's exactly the point. With man, this is impossible. You try to go on your own, if you try to take your pride through the turnstile of the narrow way it'll squeeze you out and if you're unwilling to part with it you cannot go there you'll be turned away you must acknowledge pride you must say I am I, I am am in abject humility before God. I realize my own pride. I recognize that what you're doing, God, is showing me your perfect law. And as I compare my own life against the perfect law of God, I realize something. I'm a midget. I'm a person who doesn't measure up. I couldn't ever possibly stand righteously before God and say, I have done the smallest item in which to merit entrance into your kingdom. Let me in. And so pride is the issue that Jesus is pinpointing. And believe me, pride is always at the top of the list, beginning with Satan himself and going through Adam all the way down. Always an issue of pride. You remember, I told you last Sunday night when we talked about the publican and the center, or the Pharisee and the publican, and I told you that the Pharisee said, I thank thee that I'm not like these other fellows. I tithe and I do all of this. And that's just a display of pride. And you can't go to the kingdom of heaven with pride. God wants all of us to know that He gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. Second passage, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And this is very provocative. Mark 10.32, they were on the road, that is Jesus and the disciples and the crowd, and they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen, Almost a carbon copy of Mark 8 saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise again. Almost a carbon copy of what he said in Mark 8. This is what's going to happen to me. And without even batting an eyelash, James and John, who should be pondering such a weighty thing, who should be looking to themselves and saying, what can I do to facilitate what my master has said so that I can be a useful vessel, humble and fit for his use? Instead, in verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. My word. Let's use as a key word here, preeminence. Preeminence. James and John... I want to be right next to Christ, one on the right and one on the left. That's not preeminence. I don't know what is. In another text, they even tried to force their mom to go up and do it. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You don't even know what you're asking because you know that before I am glorified, suffering is to come. See, they didn't understand the suffering part. You understand what you're going to have to endure if this is going to be your place? They, just, they said to him, verse 39, we are able. Sure. Lord, if, if that's what it means for us to be on your right and left, hey, we'll take that preeminent spot. Anything that comes our way, we can handle it. Sure, we're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Yes, you are going to die. Yes, that is true, but you don't understand that. But to sit on my right or on my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. In other words, men, you're going to have to be prepared. You don't know what you're asking. You're in pride and preeminence. Now, you'd figure that the other ten, if they were hearing this at all, would say, Can you believe those two guys? But hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, men, the demands of discipleship are this. You have to lose yourself (laughs) of yourself. You know like that statement that says deny yourself. It's not denying things. It's denying your very self. That's the whole point. No one is ever saved if you have a part of yourself as involved in the process. It's a losing of self. It's a self-abdication. It's an idea that says, I know I can't save myself. I know I have nothing to offer. Only to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. I have nothing to add to the cross. Jesus has paid it all. I could never come and be the greatest if I'm not willing to see myself as a humble servant. This is preeminence gone berserk. Third passage. Matthew chapter 10. And see, beloved, what we're beginning to see is that there's a deeper issue here with these demands of discipleship passages. What we're really seeing is Jesus is going to the heart of the sin of the person that he's dealing with and he's saying, you don't even recognize that you're violating the law of God and therefore not worthy of entering my kingdom. You have to see this. You have to see your pride and preeminence. That's why the demands are given there. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Well, listen, if there's going to be a denial here, I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm not denying Christ before men. I I want to be a part of His kingdom. I want to be a part of His, His Father who is in heaven and His kingdom. Jesus said, verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. What? This is so hard. This is such a hard demand. You mean to tell me that if I am going to love Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to hate my own family? I'm going to have to be set against my own family? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross up and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You say, this sounds like works. This sounds like if I I hate my mother and father, then that means that Christ is going to love me. No, what it's saying is the love that you have for Jesus Christ will by comparison look as though it is hate for everyone around you. Your love is so supreme for Christ. And what he's trying to say is, listen, the law of God says honor the Lord your God and serve Him only. That's the first. That's the preeminent. You must have love for God in the face of Jesus Christ preeminently. And if anyone comes along and says, yeah, well, I want to do that, or I've been trying to do that, or I'm in the process of doing that, or, you know, I'm not really sure about that, but I'll tell you one thing, I really love my family. That's like the guy who said, listen, I want to follow you, Christ, but let me go bury my father. What did Christ say to him? Was he insensitive? He said, let the dead bury their, what? Own dead. You say, that's... Someone insensitive on the part of Christ, isn't it? No, he's trying to say that the issue, when comparison of all the stuff of the world, all the stuff that you could be involved in, all of the stuff of this life, if you are consumed with those things, then you can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't. It is an all-consuming love. It is an all-surpassing love. And when Christ came, comes to save a man, he asks him the question, are you willing to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And if a person says, no, I'm not willing to do that, and he says, you can't be my disciple. Love for God is first. Love for others, if it comes, will be by comparison almost a hate because my love for Jesus Christ is that strong. That's the key word, love. I can't love things and others and my own agenda, and my own plan to the degree that when Christ looks at my love for him, he says, it's lacking. It's wanting. You say you love me. Isn't that what he said to Peter? Peter ditched the whole thing and started going back to his fishing trade, and Jesus came up to him and said, Peter, do you love me? Where's your love, Peter? Lord, you know that I love you, and he says, do you? has to ask him three times, doesn't he? That's the same with us. Isn't, isn't it right for us to be asked, do we love God? Do we love our family? Do we love the things of the world to the degree that we are unwilling to give our allegiance and the discipleship demands of Jesus Christ? And then there's another one, John chapter 6. John 6. And our key word here is unbelief. Unbelief. John six forty one. We don't have time to develop it. What it says is the Jews were grumbling about Christ because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were choked on the idea that they were only looking at Jesus as a human being. How could He be this guy out of heaven? And how could He be talking about being the bread out of heaven? What is He saying? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Jesus says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us of his flesh to eat? Again, they were having that problem of the literal and the spiritual. We're supposed to eat this guy's flesh? What in the world is he talking about? And Jesus is saying, Listen, if you're not with me, if you're not willing to acknowledge who I am and my person, then you're not willing to abide with me. You're not willing to partake of that which I am about to partake, my death, my burial, my resurrection. And if you're not willing to partake of that, you have no part with me. Verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 59, these things He said in the synagogue as He taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that His disciples, grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Verse 66, there were a whole bunch of followers. You know that there was a crowd around Christ always when He did the miracles and the teaching. There were always people gathered around Him, sometimes so dense that He couldn't even move. And so He had all of these would-be disciples and all of these would-be followers and all of these people who said, Boy, I love this Jesus. I love this teaching ministry. I'm in. I'm apart. I'm throwing my lot in with this guy. He healed my brother. He gave the the friend of mine his his legs back. I was there when that man was lowered down through the roof and he was healed. I saw it with my own eyes. I'm following this man, Jesus, all the way. And then the difficult statement. And then verse 66, as a result of this, many of his followers, many of the fringe people withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You say, well, it's because of this work salvation deal. Or, as some say, it's because they were, they were true disciples, they were saved, but they didn't want to go on to the next level of discipleship. They didn't want to catapult up to that next level. They were happy being in by the skin of their teeth. No, sir. Don't do that to these texts. These texts demand that what Jesus is saying is that if a person is willing to see their sin for what it is, then and only then can that person be a candidate to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Anybody who has pride, who has preeminence, who has love, who has money, or here, unbelief. You're not willing to follow Christ in everything he says. Everything he says, you're not willing to be a disciple of Christ. It's not discipleship on your terms, it's discipleship on his terms. This is what he says. And someone says, boy, that's a difficult statement. I agree with him, this is tough. No, it's only tough when I am trying to do it with my own effort. You see, how many people, how many of us, how many of our testimonies could be this? I was working, I was working, I was working, I was laboring, I was going to church all the time, I was reading my Bible, I was praying, I was giving money, I was doing all kinds of work for the church, I was a philanthropist, I was doing all this stuff. I tried to help people, I tried to do everything that I possibly could, and I realized, like the song last week, the farther I ran, the more away from Christ I seem to be going. That's what self-effort does. That's why Isaiah says, it's filthy rags, my works, because it's my works. Because all of my works are tainted with sin. All of my works are not good enough to ever merit the approval of God. In fact, every work that I would ever do to merit the approval of God are a is in His nostrils because it's my effort to be accepted by Him. It's not accepting His effort And what his effort is, is what Jesus Christ did on that cross. He doesn't need my works. In fact, my works are so opposite of the work of Christ, I abandon all self-effort. I say no to my sin. I say no to every good thing I ever thought I ever did. My pride, my preeminence, my love, my money, my unbelief, and lastly, Luke 14, my control. My control. Luke chapter 14. And what I've done is just taking you through some of these hard and very difficult passages, and they're not talking about stepping up to some second level of discipleship. That throws Jesus' teaching off into some bizarre issue for which Jesus never intended. And it's not talking about a work salvation. May it never be. It's talking about the demands that are given to anyone who is unwilling to look at their sin for what it is. Luke 14 Verse 25. Now, large crowds, again, these large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine how it must have blown their minds to hear a statement like this? I mean, just try try that on the next evangelistic encounter you have. What's the point? The point is if you love mother and father and sister and brother and yes, even your own self, to the degree that you would say no to Christ, then you obviously cannot be His disciple. You see? It's hitting at my my pride, my love, my my self-love, and it's saying that if I love all of these things to the degree that Christ cannot have His preeminent place, then I can't be His disciple. You say, well, what happens if I then acknowledge that I can't have that kind of love? My love has to be supremely toward Christ. And I give evidence that Christ has actually drawn me to himself and shown me that I am a sinner. It's just like that publican who was beating his breath saying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. I realize my condition. I recognize my debauched state. I recognize I have nothing to offer you. And what I do offer you, such as it is, is only this wicked self of mine. This is all I have. Is it possible, Lord? Is it possible that in your grace and mercy, as I fall down before you, that you would receive me into the kingdom? He says, one condition. One condition. Because you've acknowledged this and because you have become bankrupt in your spiritual condition, there's only one way. There's nothing you can do, but I have done it all. I've done it all. I've allowed my only son, Jesus himself, to die on your behalf. He's the bridge from death to life. You're in certain peril. You know it. You now acknowledge it. There's no pride there. There's no preeminence. There's no love of money. There's no self-love. There's no unbelief. And here in Luke 14, there's control. See, it's an issue of control. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? You see, the issue is, am I willing to acknowledge where I am? I don't have enough in my army to win the battle. I could try to put down 20,000, 30,000, 80,000, 4 million of my best troops. And if I counted the costs accurately, I realized there's no way I'm going to be defeated. So what do I do? I surrender. I surrender all. And I say to Christ, such as I am, Take me. Please take me. I don't deserve to be in your heaven. I don't deserve who you are. I don't deserve your worthiness for my unworthiness. But Lord, if, if possible, if you're willing, could you give me the just one for this unjust one? Could that be true, Lord? Could I be counted among your servants? I'll sweep the back floor of the back room of the kingdom. That's all I want. And if the Lord sees in that heart the smashing of pride and preeminence and the love of money or the love of self and the unbelief that's there and the control, and if He's pleased, He grants that salvation. And that's why we'll spend eternity, beloved, eternity thanking Him for that gift. You see, that's why there can be no effort. We have to abandon all self-effort. You say, well, that sounds like a work. No, no. Anybody's ability to see the abandonment of all that they are can only come when Jesus Christ draws us to Himself. When He opens those blind eyes and He tells us, this is who you are. Have you ever had that reality? Maybe through a confrontation of someone, or you read a book, or you read your own Bible, or you hear a conversation, or you hear preaching, and all of a sudden it just, right there, and you say, you know what, that's me. That's me. That is me. That is who I am. Well, if you're proud, you'll say, No, it isn't. No, that's not me. No, that's somebody else. In fact, that's my neighbor down the street. Boy, that's him to a T. Yeah, that guy, he, he needs to, man, he needs to clean up his act. There is no question about it. No? You look at yourself and it happens that way. Christ is drawing you to himself and you say, Yes, Lord. This is me. Oh, Lord, how could you accept me? How could you, how could you ever grant me the possibility of having fellowship with you? And the answer is, he shouldn't, but he does. You have that kind of view of salvation? See, when you have that kind of view of salvation, it really doesn't matter if you call it salvation or discipleship. It's all a process of knowing who I am in light of who Jesus Christ is. That's why all of this talk today about self-worth and self-esteem and self-love is so damning. Because it keeps a person thinking about themselves when the idea is for me to go out of myself, to realize the the self-denial that must be there. Oh, beloved, we've been sold a satanic pot of porridge. And the better and quicker and faster we say no to that ideology, the better. What we must say is, Jesus Christ, I come to you in repentance, knowing that even the gift of repentance and faith is a gift from you. You've brought it to me. I didn't bring it to myself. There's nothing I could do, and I cast myself upon your mercy. I do believe that Jesus Christ died and was buried and was later raised on the third day, and I recognize that if I'm ever going to abide with Him, if I'm ever going to be raised... With him, it's because I deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. That's the only way to be saved, beloved. Oh, it would be such a tragedy if everybody in this worship center in the first or second hour went away from this and didn't say about yourself, I must do a self examination, I must look at my life. And I must ask myself, what do I see? And if God shows me that there's pride or preeminence or the love of self or money or the unbelief or the control and if it's there and if I don't say, yes, it's there, I confess it, I forsake it, I see that it's there and the only way for me to do so is for Christ to come into my life. The ultimate tragedy of a day like today. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe today. You may not have tomorrow. It's not been promised. Come to Christ. Believe in Him. Recognize that your life is not a life of worth. It's a life that only is worthy of condemnation, and that's exactly what my life is like. But Jesus Christ comes, and in the wonder of it all, just the wonder of it all, He has, in eternity past, decided to save any of us. Out of the mass of sinful humanity, He's taken a few of us And he said, I'm going to set my love upon you. Does that motivate you for service, for love, for ministry? Does that motivate you to say everything for Christ, everything for him? And every time he points out my sin, I readily recognize it. And I acknowledge it and I say, yes, Christ, you're right. When you do that, beloved, you're on the road to discipleship. You're in it. And Christ is blessing you in the work. And there's no hard demand. There's nothing in these pages of Holy Scripture that you have any problem with. I've read commentaries and other supposed scholars who read statements like this and the hard demands of Jesus, and they just dismiss it with a whim. And I just think to myself, He will not confess them before His Father who is in heaven. You must come. You come now to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that on a day like today, no one, no one would leave this place without recognizing through these very hard demands that it is the law that catches us up short. That it is Christ and Christ alone who is able to live the kind of life for which we are being challenged. And only Christ can show us the way. And when we see our bankrupt condition, we acknowledge so readily and so freely that we, through our self-effort, have been on a road that goes nowhere. Lord, I pray that anyone here who is under the conviction of sin would say to themselves, even now, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner I acknowledge that I'm in need of a Savior. And as Christ has drawn me to Himself, I repent and believe in Him. I don't want to be ashamed. I want Him to take me with Him, to be presented faultless and blameless before the Father. I pray right now that you would, in the quietness of your own heart, express your total and utter dependence upon Christ. He's the only one that can save you. If you as a Christian have already made such a realization of your own soul and what Christ has done there, may a message like this motivate you for service. How could we hold back anything in our service and ministry to Christ? How could we not be faithful in our attendance and worship? How could we not pray as we ought? How could we not give as we ought? How could we not study your word as we ought? Lord, if we don't realize what price was paid on our behalf. Oh, we should be so motivated. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for giving us your life. And may we realize it is only Christ. We love you. And we thank you for your gracious and free salvation. Amen.